I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Scaffold is supported in part by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Joseph Seal Henry and Pooja Agrawal, co-founders of Sound Advice, a platform for discussing inequality in the built environment through coupling music with tips and slogans on social media. Sound Advice creates space to explore the visceral and human experience of inequality through a range of mediums. In addition to their Instagram feed, which functions in part as a gallery of protest slogans, Joseph and Pooja have hosted visual podcasts and created a new award series showcasing the work of undervalued and alternative spatial practitioners. Most recently, they published the book Now You Know, which gathers the thoughts and reflections of more than 50 architects and urbanists of color in a compendium of essays, poems, and interviews, as well as advice on how to address the discrimination baked into our built environment. Prior to establishing Sound Advice, Joseph and Pooja both studied architecture, but quickly migrated to urban planning, drawn to the world of policymaking as a place to affect real change in the way that cities are made and inhabited. Joseph is also a principal project officer at the Greater London Authority Regeneration Team, and was recently part of a team led by Asif Khan Studio, shortlisted to design a new entrance to the National Gallery in London. Pooja is co-founder and CEO of Public Practice, a social enterprise connecting built environment practitioners with forward-thinking local authorities. We met in person at Pooja's home back in May, with the conversation taking the format of the Sand Advice Method. Joseph and Pooja put together a playlist for our conversation, which formed the foundation of our discussion. You can find the full playlist on Sound Advice's Spotify page or in the show notes to this episode. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. So, I actually don't really know how to start this one. I think there'll be a kind of threading of tracks throughout mm-hmm. the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are also some just key topics I want to cover. I don't know how they're going to fit into the, the structure of the um, playlist necessarily. So it might be more like a weird kind of zipper of music discussion and then maybe a tangent into some things. Right, sounds quite us. Yeah, uh-huh. we're happy being quite fluid. So, as a way of beginning, could you help me understand what led you both to establish Sound Advice as a project? Sound Advice was more of a hunch and a feeling and an emotion that the industry wasn't providing the space that was required for people of colour to practice in a way that was authentic to them, or that your authentic self wasn't quite acceptable to the industry. 
And we really wanted to change the tone of discussion as well. So a lot of discussions around diversity are very earnest. Uh, lots of people feeling quite careful about what they say. And I think we wanted to blow it apart a little bit and be quite, uh, not necessarily provocative, but like funny and humorous and cut out the sort of like bullshit and get to the point of it. It's like the first article we wrote before after parties like Zine Zero Zero, they were all experiences that most people of color in the industry had felt. Listeners might not be familiar with what After Party is. And just in summary, it was it is a magazine that was initiated off the back of the New Architectural Writers Program, yeah. which was founded by Finn Harper and Tom Wilkinson a couple of years ago yeah. and supported by the Architecture Foundation and the Architecture Review, I think. And it's essentially an initiative to get people from underrepresented backgrounds into architecture criticism. And this magazine After Party came out of that. And their first issue um, had an article that invited you and Pooja to get together and pick some tracks and pair them with advice. How did that happen? I think this goes back to our lack of attention span <laughs> and our inability to have written the like 2000 word essay that they had We're like, we wanted. can't do this, we can't do this. We always have this idea that we can, or that we should challenge what our briefs are or what the supposition is that we're responding to. We have we've become really close friends working together, not really working on any projects together, but just working in the same space. And over time, you know, Joseph became my confidant of a lot of experiences I was having personally, experiences that I often found quite hard to articulate because often they can be quite subtle or maybe not so subtle, but you sort of choose to see it as being subtle or mm. not wanting to see yourself as someone who has a chip on their shoulder, someone who is always trying to make a big deal out of a kind of, you know, some stray comment that was made. Mm. And, you know, actually a lot of this was Joseph and I often just sending each other WhatsApp messages like, can you believe someone just said this to me? And, you know, it became a really kind of safe space, mm. but also quite funny. And I think that's the way we dealt with it was just, thinking it was really funny a lot of the time. Obviously it isn't, but we kind of found a way of making it funny. So um, another Indian uh, colleague in in uh, my team, like we basically just started counting the number of times people would get us mixed up, like multiple times. I mean, it's like, I think we were on 10 over sort of three years, uh, often by other Asian colleagues as well. So, you know, uh, I don't know what that means, but anyway, there was, two of us at the time in the team. So, you know, that becomes, became kind of one of our slogans, as it were, if that's what we are calling it, and one of our statements. So, you know, with this piece as well, a lot of them were experiences that were felt by us or and, and it sort of all came out. And I think it, well, it was definitely, I remember Joseph being like, hold on, we can, let's put a playlist mm-hmm. together with this. And Sufan from um, After Party, really helped to pull it together and make it more mm. coherent as well and definitely give her a lot of credit for. And she coined the term sound advice. She did, didn't yeah. she? Absolutely, yeah. And I was just thinking the we uh, tested it. So we weren't sure that this was a good idea or not. And I remember we tested it out with Akil Scave-Smith from Resolve <laughs> in a pub in Tooting. And yeah, I do people just laughed the whole way through it. And it was like, that happened to me. That happened to me. Snap, snap, snap. And we think, and we thought, okay, if three of us in this room have these universal experiences, surely this is almost a way of building the community and 
flipping uh, flipping uh, issues of discrimination into something positive. But I think of all the culture and music and things and that immaterial culture that comes out of being oppressed and oppression. And not that not that we would ever grandiose sound advice in that way, but there is an element of you can build collective like empowerment through flipping negative experiences and saying, no, we're going to come out of this and we're not going to like, like you're, you're the mugs here. I think that's, that was kind of like the overarching like a- attitude was like, no, you're the idiot because it's so obvious what you're doing. Or like, how can you like not tell us apart? There's only two people, there's two names to remember, but you think you're like the center of excellence, but you can't remember more than two names. This doesn't seem right. So I think this idea of, of, of us having this like mediocre, like, uh, default like enemy that everyone else could then sort of like riff off I think became like quite a key part of mm. of sound advice and we always I think have an antagonist all our projects have an antagonist at the start and then our, our kind of thing is how do we create an alternative future by undermining that antagonist and creating like something better in its place mm. um, and the tips are sort of like the the drum beat or the marching band to the next project they kind of fill the space between the longer form projects, I guess. All right, let's get to the first track. This is The Sweetest Taboo by Shane. as well call like the foundation to keep it architectural of both like my introduction to music from my mum and also the tone of like if this was a space the tone of this song would be wild wonder create as an architect but the first property I grew up in the first house I grew up in was a flat on a 13th or 12th or 13th floor of a block in South London and my living room or my parents living room or my mum's living room to be most specific had a view over the whole of London essentially because it was on top of a hill and then the block was on top of the hill so really high vista and my mum would play a lot of music so this song I remember as a child sort of looking over the city of London and all the orange lights sort of coming back so it's pre you know you couldn't see Canary Wharf pre the city being what it is so everything was very low and very orange and my mum has a hatred of like main lighting so everything's always lamp lit so this idea of this kind of like intimate soft atmospheric space this song captures that and I always think of like what uh, what kind of like atmosphere or vibe as an architect would you want to create and this is like the song of it hearing you talk about this song 
It's just making me realize, or it's reminding us what we already know about music, that it's a kind of portal mm. into um, memory and deep experience, and also into uh, an emotional state, mm. um, a vibe or a mood. Um, and it kind of brings us directly inside of it. And even just you recounting your childhood experience in your mom's flat, looking over the city, like that's incredibly intimate and atmospheric and direct. Um, you know, when I listen to the sound, the playlist, um, I'm listening on my own, my headphones on, and the music is inside of me. <laughs> like, it's like, you can't really get much more in your head than mm -hmm. that. It's not a public kind of forum in a way. Maybe it will be in the future. I can imagine amazing parties you guys might throw. But um, the, the playlist, you know, as read in a magazine article um, or as shared from friend to friend is incredibly intimate. Let's go right to the next one. So this is, it's called Dancing Girls Theme by Madlib. I'm going to play a bit so you can understand when I talk about it. So like Joseph, I guess this song just makes me really nostalgic, but it's quite interesting because I only discovered this album by Madlib during lockdown. So I grew up in Mumbai and was there from age three to 16. And my sister and I both trained as Indian, uh, classical Indian dancers mm. and often used to practice uh, at home. But our friend, one of our best mates, used to live below us and she could always hear us, she could hear us practicing. So there was just something about the, even the name of the song called Dancing Girls that made me think of my sister and I sort of growing up in this apartment block. But also um, Madlib has sampled, in this whole album, has sampled loads of uh, Bollywood, but also Tamil music from, I think it's like the 50s to the 70s. And this particular song samples Lata Mangeshkar and Muhammad Rafi, both who are incredibly famous singers and basically sang most of Bollywood songs in that era. And for me, that is also incredibly nostalgic. It really reminds me of my grandma and my aunties and uncles. So it, there's that kind of, the, it's like the, the sound of it is nostalgic, but then you have Mad Lib's approach to kind of distorting it and playing around with it, which I don't know, this is probably quite corny or cliched, but it somehow reflects a little bit of how I feel about my identity, like living here in this country now for more than half my life. about Madlib just by discovering this album through you actually in the Beat Conductor series. There is something incredibly satisfying about the hybridity. Mm -hmm. You have a traditional sound and the way that people like Madlib are able to 
um, reinvent or reinvigorate mm. traditional music? It's really there's, hard to do. There's also like uh, the ability for music to jump like culture mm. or the or the process of making music and you know, everyone has their like form of practice. So Madlib is a, a DJ, chop samples, like sound machines. But he can then take someone who would be, a, you know, very, very traditionally crafted. It's almost like an architect coming into an existing building and thinking about what they do and they don't leave. What, what, like a lot of the thing about Madlib is like what part of the sample survives, which way the sample goes. Mm. And then the fun thing about sound advice is we can contextualize music spatially, or we can just talk about music and, Often with Pooja, like, uh, the reason I knew that Pooja liked music is she used to have these, like, massive headphones. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> Pooja's, like, relatively small. And I'm all you would... small. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you know, compared to, like, Tim Rettler. <laughs> so you just see... And at City, City Hall is, like, a traditional office. So when you're behind a desk, you don't see much other than the head and the computer screen. But all I would see are these massive headphones. <laughs> Like, you know, moving, you know, like, you can tell that someone's into music and they were on all the time. You don't get, you get a sense of, like, you can tell the people who like and don't like music at work because I always have my headphones in. I think Pooja always had her headphones in and other people who are passionate about music always have their headphones in or on. And I think that that was, like, a symbol of, like, uh, like welcome or friendship when I went to, to GLA and met someone who had, like, massive, like, DJ headphones on wearing clothes in their, like, there wasn't like what I was expecting from like a typical public sector worker. And then you realize there is no typical public sector worker. They're all as different as any architect or any other person are. And all of those like external interests feed into like how you work. Okay, let's go to your second choice, Jesse. Yeah, it's just uh, Refused to Die by Klashnikov, um, who was a very prominent MC, I guess, in the early 2000s. And for this song, I wanted to pick a song that sounded like London in my like formative years, like as I was deciding to be an architect. So this song came out in 2007, which is when I was in year 12. So just thinking about like starting to think about career choices. And to me, this song really captures like the the claustrophobia of that of that time of London, or at least how I remember it. And I've been repping this thing from Genesis Yep, my click is the venomous Merc witnesses and leave no evidence Just like President Bush But he don't represent elements More like Resident Evil's development Shit's all connected, it's all relevant Shit, You get good at fading music in and out on Spotify for our <laughs> visual podcast One thing I learned about the song we just heard was that um, There was quite a lot of animosity between um, um, Klashnikov and his producer, Joe Buda I don't know if you... I had no idea. Oh, right. <laughs> and apparently, apparently, he, like, renounced the whole album because... Yeah, Klashnikov or Jim? Klashnikov, because um, he found, like, it was just a mercenary thing in the end. And I don't think anyone got paid what they were asking for. And it was... It sounded like a huge disaster. But that is all kind of beside the point, I guess. Mm. Well, in a way, it kind of is 
the whole the whole album is like very like, I don't know if fridges the right term, like the right term like it's very it jumps between styles it jumps between like like uh, sonic aesthetics you could call it you know it's, it finds it's it's finding it's it finds itself very hard to work out where it sits in this like and I think in a way this this at this point UK rap music wasn't like it is now where people's identities are very like uh, solid so you know you have people who are um, uh, using their um, African identity in a very open and positive way. The thing I always liked about Kalashnikov, having had like West Indian, like uh, a West Indian mum, is his use of like Jamaican patois interspersed with English language, which reminded me a lot of the people that I used to hang out with, or the barbers, or my uncles, or whoever. And I think his his and then the use of like West Indian samples. So in a way, it's like in a way, it's really sad that this sort of like British masterpiece or this master's classic album ended up being a uh, a very exploitative process, but in a way it kind of sums up our economy and our city mm. for so many things. Like some of the best uh, bits of culture end up exploiting the people who are the foundation of it. So you could talk about gentrification, you could talk about the like commercialization of Notting Hill Carnival or like the hostility of the police to Bricks and Splash. It's like, in a way it, it, in a way it sums up quite well. London as an experience for a lot of people. In the ghetto, raised in the ghetto from a terror from a tree. And I, and I refuse to die. Bridget, let's go to your next choice. So this is Nana Cherry's Natural Skin Deep. <laughs> no, it's not. We love to. That's quite real. Both of us really struggled to choose three songs. We had like a really, really long list and sort of kept cutting it down, thinking about how it would represent us or talk about our sort of interest in space in different ways. So this song is called Natural Skin Deep. And for me, it feels like she's talking about what it means to be authentic. And um, even Joseph talking about me wearing my big headphones in at the GLA. I guess something we talk about quite a lot is like, what does it mean to be professional? And what does it mean to look like a professional architect or a professional CEO question? So there's something about this song that I find really liberating where she's just really talking about what it means to be, to own your own identity and feel like you're sort of looking and finding your community as it were. Um, also, this was one of the last gigs I saw uh, before lockdown and I was really pregnant, like super heavily pregnant. And I remember thinking that was quite a funny experience to, to go to a gig being pregnant. But then 
Nana is like a grandma and she was like to, like she was absolutely incredible on stage and it gave me some a kind of sense of like power empowerment for what um, motherhood could be uh, in the future and then the last reason was um, it's produced by Fortet this album and Fortet's one of my all-time favorites he has Indian heritage and um, more recently in his work he um, has been sampling more I think he discovered a lot of his grandfather's old records after he died and has been using Indian music in his work more uh, but he like I've always just really really loved his music so we used this song in our first kind of visual podcast for the Architecture Foundation yeah. and the the music video for this is loads and loads, it was filmed in Beirut and it's loads and loads of people um, kind of using their phones and sort of almost following Nana as she's walking through the city and this was pre-lockdown but there was a sense of like living through an, um, a screen how we were doing that regardless even before lockdown happened and I think our kind of slogan for this was like why not just use a phone as a phone. Pooja and I have our own histories our own perspectives so we never there's never like a sound advice conclusion of what it is to to watch this music video but I think it to me it was about like what is it to be present in an urban environment with lots of observation? Mm -hmm. And I think observation for some people is safety, for other people it's fear. Mm -hmm. And to be observed and to be recorded is like a, is like a, a loss of civil liberties. It's like a loss of mm -hmm. like private space. And for a lot of people, you don't, you don't lose private space if you don't ever have it. And therefore, what is it to, like the idea of like, oh, I'm losing this, I'm losing that, is quite like a privileged thing. Because a lot of people that we work with are trying to get stuff. Mm. So they're not so worried about losing stuff. Well, I want to step back for a moment and just touch more on this other facet of the project, of the Sound Advice project, that has a lot to do with design and graphic design in particular. Mm -hmm. Just to quickly describe to listeners who may not have seen the logo or encounter the the slogans on Instagram. This um, it's the name sound advice, but in a kind of ransom note typeface, different typefaces. Um, and there's something incredibly subversive and thrilling about it. And I just wonder, Joseph, if you could talk more about the process of developing the the visual identity of sound advice. Yeah. So at the beginning, we did it ourselves. Um, but quite quickly, you know, you have to admit that you're not a graphic designer. There's a craft and a, a rigor to visual communication. I think it would be really good if architects actually admitted that. Let's just put that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that's part of what you learn when you're uh, when you join the public sector. Is you can't do everything. You have certain skills. You have certain strengths, and you need to let go. Um, we found through uh, friends uh, this graphic designer called Joel. Antoine Wilkinson, um, and we like like all things. He we sent we sent him our Instagram, told us a bit about what we wanted. Originally, it was just for the book. I think we started off saying we need a graphic designer for the book, but then quickly realised the, the book couldn't be like a um, a satellite. It had to be like like a like anchored to something like a more of a core aesthetic, and then this is a, a spin off of that of that brand. Um, or identity, or whatever you want to call it. And it was interesting because Joel then turned up when we met him for the first time with references for us to look at. 
And he very quickly got what we were trying to do, which is expand the cultural references that are valuable in built environment sector. So why can't you use Wu-Tang Clan as a starting point for a community center, for example, if you were in Staten Island, why would that not be a relevant cultural reference? So again, why isn't the like aesthetic of 90s rap graphic design not a relevant starting point for an architectural spatial justice platform? Okay. So he turned up with like Brick Magazine, uh, AA Files, and in a way, his pile of books was a mixture of music culture, mm. visual culture, architecture. Um, and then just, we kind of had this notion, maybe it was my notion, maybe I'm like, but this idea of like, I wanted a architecture logo that you could wear around your neck as a gold chain. And if you look at our logo, it kind of responds to like the old Rockefeller logo, like Jay-Z's old record label of this kind of like, bold O that they had and then this like very schooly R to sat on top of it. Mm -hmm. I think the idea that like the the logo is trying to bust out of a space mm. as well. It has like it looks like it's exploding, or it looks like it's trying to push the boundaries, which is a bit of a cliche. And somehow Joel got it. Like he only showed us like two options. Joel almost designed that like straight he kind of heard us chat for like two hours, just like load of like, you know, like this. this. Yeah, um, basically. And then came back and was like, it's either like the, the alternative logo was like a stack sound system inspired by Carnival, or is this, which is like his interpretation of like us trying to fight out of like a boundary, like a red line boundary, like a planning boundary. Uh. Which in a way is kind of like why we went into public sectors when you're an architect, yeah. you're given this like red line boundary and you work in that. In the GLA, you don't really worry that much about those. You kind of can fuzz the edges and I think our logo is like a fuzzed architectural language. But at the same time we have a count we have a secondary logo, mm. which is very much more architectural. And then we have a very this thing where we like slam the two logos together to create like an alternative voice. So when we do invoices or fee proposals, we use the like more doled down logo. And then when we're like stamping our authority onto like a project, we then use the much more expressive one. Mm. I think the idea that we occupy dual spaces like literally through like public sector as architects, like um, as ethnic people in Britain, like constantly like having to walk two sides. Joel, who is also of Jamaican heritage, of mixed Jamaican heritage, so I've got that in a way so quickly. And I think he's almost like the third member of Sound Advice because he's created an aesthetic for our voice or he's created a sound for our voice, if it were, as it, as it were. And I think kind of, we talk a lot about language as well and words. And I think Joel really gave our words a kind of strength and um, I don't want to use the word diverse in it because it has certain connotations, but like how you almost represent different types of voices. So mm. we're really, really keen that Sound Advice is not actually about Joseph and me, but it's a platform and that's why we call it a platform. Mm. And, you know, these slogans are also fed into us from other people who are often don't are scared to say some of these things. I mean, some of these things make me feel uncomfortable. And, mm. and I guess that's the point. It's really provocative. And it's not, we are not saying this, it's sound advice platform is saying this. And his use of multiple fonts even somehow brings it as like lots of different people mm -hmm. are saying these things. And but as a collection, they come together as this really powerful mm. voice which again he just really managed mm -hmm. to capture really brilliantly yeah i mean this brings us to that question about the about the slogans we had a few emails back and forth preparing for the conversation and 
last night I was realizing like the probably to me what's most fundamental to the project as a kind of uh, project that's consumed by a public are the slogans themselves, which for listeners who aren't familiar, I would urge you now to just go over to uh, sound underscore x underscore advice on Instagram and just scroll through them as you listen to the podcast because I'm not going to read them out. I asked um, Pooja and Joseph if they'd be interested in reading a few out and um, um, Pooja, you responded that it might be odd. And I understand why, but I also want to explore why it's odd or why, where that discomfort lies, acknowledging the fact that, um, you know, as you just explained, it's not just you and Joseph who've come up with these things. It's a kind of plural we or us. Yeah, I think it's that, but it's also we're really conscious of the different forms of media we use. So I think a lot of those slogans are very much designed to be posters that are read as a poster, as, as an image on Instagram. And when we have done something like a visual podcast, we've used music videos to talk about key themes. Or if we've done our Sound Advice Awards, which was about celebrating people who make a huge impact on the built environment, but well, we created awards. So somehow, I'm not sure these different formats, like us reading out the slogan almost gives it enough justice because mm-hmm. it is in its design and its aesthetic, which you know, you've know you given, we've talked about, and that's what gives it its entire, like its strength as well. Mm-hmm. So somehow taking it out of that context, it would, it would see, feel like it was sort of floating. And there is again, something about how you see a lot of these at the same time you know, some of them do probably stand out more than others, but as a collection, again, it's a, it's a kind of whole experience that you experience through the Instagram format. So this, I think that there's something about that that probably it just would feel like it was hanging. Yeah, they're designed to be read. Um, they when we did the Sound Advice Awards, each award had a title of a like a tip. And I remember when we were doing it, always felt jarring, the tip. It was almost like the tip didn't need to be said. And by saying it, it over, it overcooked what they were. Mm. Um, and I think that sense that if I want to talk about some, the, the tips, I think in some ways are like the, the bread and butter, but they're also slightly problematic in the sense that they, um, without the Sign of Ice Awards or the book or the visual podcasts, it doesn't have enough depth as a project. The tips are a way of like, often that's the way people find us. So we, like we're aware enough to know they, they share, like we see the data from our insights. And if some posts get shared, you know, 30 times, 40 times, that drives an audience. There's an element of like bait about it. That's so interesting that you say that, because I feel like the same way music is this portal into a specific emotional state, so too is a slogan, right? Mm. And it's it's like, it's amazing the way you've been able to capitalize off of um, what uh, generates shares or traffic, which is typically like animus, right? It's like, mm. it's controversy and it's provocation. And um, anyone who knows Twitter or Instagram well knows that like uh, uh, provocative statements are shared quite freely and easily and um, generate good traffic. Mm. Um, and I mean, I guess if we're going to explore the kind of emotional states that the, the slogans might bring, 
partly it's anger at the status quo. And then on the other side of that, it's shame, uh, mm. which is probably one of the most, probably the most potent affect in a way. I want to dwell there for a bit. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> and it would be even more uncomfortable, I think, if we were to start reading them out now and kind of picking them apart, which we're not going to do. But maybe could you speak more to the process of writing the statements and how you decide how far to push? Yeah, it's interesting, the shame point, because I think it's less shame, but more like a mirror. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really like, interested in the work of Alexander McQueen, like a fashion designer. And the piece of theatre or spectacle that he created, and I guess we are like a form of spectacle in some ways, was when he made the fashion critics look at themselves in the mirror mm. for a really long time. And they made them feel really uncomfortable about who they were, what they're doing, how they treat young designers, all these sorts of things. So in a way, it's more like a, to me, it's more like a mirror. Because if you did nothing wrong, there's nothing to feel shamed about, or there's nothing to worry about. Mm. But we do know that people read some of our things and then go, oh, have I done this? Or so it's it's less about shaming, but more a moment of like reflection, um, or like more like a mirror back to the the like a dominant. Although lots of the people that would most of the people that follow us don't need to read this stuff as well, which is like the the irony of all of this. I mean, we know we like it is a struggle to get the shall we say the target audience to really engage in our work. Um, like our Instagram following is majority female by a substantial amount. Um, and most of our followers don't reside in the UK. So the fact that we have a, 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 <laughs> a, a uh, frustration with the British architecture scene, which is male dominated, <laughs> the fact that most of these people don't follow us is quite an interesting uh. thing. But what, we, what often we have is we'll post something and someone we've never met before will say like, thank you know, like, thank you so much for saying this. I wanted to find a way of articulating it, but I couldn't or um, or whatever. Like, you know, people come to us and say, you know, I always thought it was just me. Mm-hmm. Because although in, although in London it's not a great situation, we have like uh, uh, people from the LGBT community who are of uh, East Asian descent in Australia. It's much, you know, it's much harder <laughs> for them than it is for us in some ways. And for them, and like for us, for me, it's like uh, I always, I always like underestimate what it feels like. That thing that Pooja and I were talking about, about like confidence, like a lot of what we were saying is, "Am I crazy, or did this actually happen?" And I think what our book, what our tips do is like kind of do that, but in like a much global public's way. And I think that's probably like the secret to their like, like in a way, their transferability, because mm-hmm. it usually it's shared less to shame, but more to say, like. Uh, we're out here, or like you know, we are, we exist, mm-hmm. <laughs> or like I don't know. And also, we have, I guess we have to talk more about the people who follow us, about why they decide to share or not share. Yeah, I think they do make people laugh as well, and I think that is hopefully that laughter, the, the anger into laughter is like a useful like uh, uh, pressure release or a useful like yeah, but, some sort of like yeah. And I, I guess thing. the only thing I'd add there is like the space of discomfort is a space of pausing. I guess it does make you stop, or hopefully. And I guess that is, I guess, what you're saying about reflection. It gives people a moment to think, which I don't think any of us do enough, mm. really. Well, I mean, unless, I guess you were asking about how do we write them. Yeah, no, like I know. It's, it's inter- there isn't one set process. So sometimes we will say something, we'll WhatsApp each other, and then we'll go, oh, that sounds like a sound advice. And we'll, like, take it, put it into our, like, archives. We've got, like, all of them 
you have like a Google Doc. Like from a very technical point of view, you have a Google Doc. <laughs> and in that Google Doc, we have like some themes of like what we want to do. And then as things come to us, we just jump it in a Google Doc. And then when we feel like we probably added enough content, we'll go through it and think, what is interesting? Some, some of them write themselves. Some of them, you know, they might only be 10 words. We might craft those 10 words over like months. So some tips are very much us as individuals. Mm. Increasingly, they're not. They're more mm. about everyone else and hearing. And also because we're called Sound Advice, lots of people DM us saying, you know, do you have, like literally, do you have advice for this? I'm in a situation, uh, this happened to me. Uh, and, then we, and then they'll say, you know, if you want to use this as a sound advice tip or if you want to like find a way of recontextualizing my story into mm. something that gives someone else, empowers someone else, then please go ahead and do that. So mm. increasingly they become the stories of the community in a way. Another aspect I think I'll bring into this is what we try to do is try and talk about our built environment, our architecture, city, homes in a different type of language that's not um, academic in inverted commas. So it being sort of using words and language and talking about things in a way that is just really accessible. And there's something here as well about music and lyrics. It's like, why aren't song lyrics seen as a cultural reference or, uh, you know, why aren't we footnoting lyrics in academic papers? There's, in, there's so much depth and wisdom and intellectualism in people's experiences or in lyrics in a way that's not really explored at all. And that's another angle of us always twinning each of the tips with music is another kind of form of our version of academia, our version of talking about our experiences in a different way and giving that weight. Mm. So yeah, so the, the final song I picked uh, Kano and Popcorn Can't Hold Me Down. And this comes more from like, uh, I guess the first one was like a foundation, the next one was like formative years, and then this one is like, you know, the most contemporary song that I picked. And I think part of it is uh, about like confidence. So like this song in a way is like a celebration or like a culmination of like uh, someone's craft. In this case, it's like Kano, like this is like of his like opus, Hoodies All Summer, which is probably like his best album almost like immaculately produced, written piece of work. And I kind of feel in the last year, having turned, turned 30 and now 31, like it took, it's taken until now to feel like I have a stable form of practice. That I'm confident in like articulating, understand what it is I want to do. I think in a way this song is like a, a, a example of like practice culminating in something like celebratory. My practice is like honed enough to know what I don't want to do. And I think that takes such a long time. I think this song in a way is that Kano is like, I've got to a stage where I, don't, I know what I don't want to do. And then, and then from now on, it's just what I do want to do. And I feel like this is like an example of that, I guess. Tell them a bad man thing and a yard man thing and a land man thing. 
But why them warm and feel them no warm and free them no warm and win Them know them can't violate Can me have something where you sing like violin I want to jump right to another topic now just to move things along because I know we want to get to the book but I also want to talk briefly about the Sound Advice Awards which you mentioned um, earlier in the conversation. Um, so this was a visual, I'm just quoting your description, a visual and sonic carnival of an event showcasing the work of undervalued and alternative spatial practitioners who are pointing a way towards the delivery, delivery of a more equitable city. So I want to talk briefly about um, this idea of new models of recognition. So this is a complimentary discussion that was held at the AA, I think, in the aftermath of the award ceremony. Yes, yeah. 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 inspired by uh, Manager Vigasse seeing the awards and then wanting to unpack a bit more about what recognition means. Um, and then we obviously ignored that and ended up inviting new people into the <laughs> conversation and reframed the idea of recognition into like a thing about the city. but. Um, yeah, it's all kind of the same piece of thought, I guess. And thinking, yeah. Thinking. So could you unpack for listeners what exactly the awards were beyond just the description I gave and and what came out of the reflection um, mm. in this uh, new models for recognition discussion? I mean, the awards were, they come out of two frustrations. There are two antagonists in the awards. One is the idea that architects centre themselves as the author of all projects. When the people that we work with so closely will be things, people like community advocates um, who, you know, fight to get funding, fight to get land, organise a lease, uh, get funding from someone like the GLA or the Arts Council, procure an architect, uh, find a, do a biz, write a business plan. They do all of these things. And then you see on an architectural uh, press, they said architect completes projects. It's like they provided a really valuable service, but they weren't the centre of all things. So the project is much bigger than the building, I think. And therefore, to me, architecture is much bigger than the building. So we wanted to do an award ceremony that took everyone that's involved in making a building and giving them all uh, like an award to thank them for what they do. So from like, the community developer to the community advocate to the person. So there is an architect who won an award, someone challenging aesthetics, um, the teacher, the like lawyer. So we had like the whole of the family it takes to make an award, a, a, a building and then parceled it up into a series of awards. So that was one antagonist, the idea that the architect is the center of all. The second antagonist is this idea that, like how much, how prestigious can an award be if you pay for it and you self-nominate? And therefore what we really wanted to do was have an award where the people, where most of the people, some of the people didn't even know who Sound of Us were and they still turned up and received their sort of slightly strange award. Um, <laughs> Which is us saying, you've won an award. Yeah, so when we when we emailed, um, I hope she's okay with me saying this, but when we emailed Dr. Kamlin Patel, she was like, this sounds amazing. I'm a little bit confused about what all of this is. But once we explained to her the premise, what we were doing, she saw the Instagram, sort of got a sense of who we were. I think what we then had was these people were like, oh, it's really strange that my work's being recognised. It's never happened before. And I think it was really nice to be the first people to recognise certain practitioners that we think will go on and become incredible like uh, people in the industry. And you're already seeing it with like Sarah Hersey, who won like a award about caring the most in, in, in spatial practice. Um, you know, it's, it was great, it was a great moment for her, but also it was a quite an emotional moment, I think, that suddenly her, not suddenly, because I think we always did value, I think the whole point is it was always valued, but no one publicly said it was. Mm. I think that moment of saying, you know, we're going to like 
recognize people. And we're also in true sound advice, like fashion. Solange tweeted this thing about award yourself, award your friends. That kind of heroes. Yeah, dude. So I think good. that, like, because we were doubting, like, is this legit? Is this really an award show? Like, how how long do you have to be an institution before you can give out awards? This sort of stuff. So this is, I just want to read it out because yeah. it's so, uh, it just really complements what you've been talking about. And you referenced this in an interview you gave to Dean Magazine. And the quote that you mentioned is from Solange, and she's saying, create your own committees, build your own institutions, give your friends awards, award yourself, and be the gold you want to hold. And it's like, it just resonates so strongly, and it's exactly what you did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I remember the whole awards thing was, like, very much Joseph. And I remember coming across that and sending it to him, being like, we're doing this. This is cool. This is amazing. This is why we're doing it. And yeah, it definitely made it feel really real. Um, I think the the one of the things that was the most amazing experience of, of the awards was just the sense of community it created even that evening, but beyond. I mean, there were real tears when people received their award. And Joseph and I at one point just looked at each other like, these awards, are, are they real? Like, it's like, but are any awards real? Like, uh-huh. who makes these things a real thing? We've just decided to do this. And it's it's a real thing. It, it was a real thing. It is a real thing. And um, Neil Pinder, who uh, received the Lifetime Achievement Award, he's an incredible teacher who um, has taught generations of architects who are, you know, like Joseph, um, he he puts it in his bio. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> winner of Lifetime Achievement Award from Sound Advice. And yeah, it, it, <laughs> we came across mm. that recently and nothing made us happier, actually. Mm. Um, and yeah, following this, I guess, Mani J was in the audience and thought it was a really interesting kind of setup and, and us kind of questioning what is it to be recognised, who is recognising whom and why, mm. sort of, we set up this event at the AA and we asked uh, Salads and um, Sufan Ade to speak and talk about their practice as very different practitioners exploring different things, one through writing, one through um, exp- like visiting and exploring buildings and talking about buildings in a kind of safe way again. Uh, and yeah, it was a really interesting space. Mm. And and the only thing I'd add here was, you know, you initially talked about how music feels like quite a personal experience in the way sound advice has sort of explored different medias. But that evening, it was again through lockdown. It felt like such an, like somehow online, we still managed to create this like incredible sense because you played each song in its entirety. and everyone was just really got into the mood of this discussion and we ended up chatting for probably two and a half three hours later it became this kind of like weird lock-in party but we continued people were just continuing to play music and having conversations this was all on zoom all on zoom and it <laughs> i don't i haven't experienced anything quite like that and uh-huh. i don't think i will it just again the power of music brought everyone on the same page Pull and speed the slang now, boy say what? One girl say what? What London pull and speed the slang now, boy say what? One girl say what? What slam? The lanka lanka la, get down. 
a chance now to talk about the book because you're you're discussing ways to tie in all these different expressions and ideas that the platform of sound advice and sound advice embodies and music is obviously at the core but um how did you decide to then make a book about it like how does that become the new hum for sound advice for public consumption the way these playlists had been i mean blind rage and whatsapp yeah i it, it was, i mean the same way i suppose all sound, sound advice projects. Every, every sound advice <laughs> project starts with rage and a WhatsApp chat between the two of us. And uh, and my mum has this saying, which is very sound advice, which is, it's easier done than said. So I think that this idea that we could talk about all our frustrations, or we could just mobilise a community of people to all collectively create space. And I think... The sound advice DNA or the sound advice rhythm is the tip and the song. But between that, anything can go. So an award, an award or a uh, long-term article or a film or a discussion. And this time we stretch the tip and the song to create like 50 opinion pieces that mainstream architectural media wouldn't, aren't going to commission, essentially. And that's, in a way, the premise of the book. But it all comes out of like Blackout Tuesday and just seeing like the shameless, fake... Uh, performative sort of response of the industry and a year later I think we were were so worried about rushing the book out because we need to capture this moment but a year later there aren't many examples of significant structural change following that show so in a way in the fact we're coming up to an anniversary of this and the book is now coming out Mm -hmm. the fact that two of us working full-time one with a young child has managed to mobilize this amount of people publish a book and have quite a lot of impact and yet well-funded institutions haven't managed to do that much or move the dial forward that much <laughs> I think it's a testament is it is again the mirror the book then becomes a bit of a mirror to say well we've done this like it's your turn to put your literally your thing on the table what have you actioned and I think in a way it it it's a and also like um, publications legitimize ideas printing stuff and in at mass and distributing distributing it is a is a legitimate will legitimize us in the way that people who look at Instagram might not. Mm. And I think that like serious uh, medium of like written publication, although we can question whether it is and we can question whether podcast, uh, obviously in this in this circumstance, but the podcast other forms of media are interesting. But there is still something about the book, the physicality and the fact that when practices who've bought the book have the book, it will be there occupying their space. It's almost like, not all of us can always watch you, but this book will be watching you. <laughs> and this book is like a symbol of all of our expectations on you to do the right thing. Mm. And I think that's kind of like a bit about it. But to be fair, I think we change our minds on what the book means regularly because it shifts as we get further and closer to mm. getting it to print and yeah, well, seeing I, it. At the moment, what I think about the book is because I'm doing, well, I think we've just done the last proofread. I have, so there's basically 50 contributions and they all vary in their style. So we have a couple of poems uh, and then we have a sort of set piece, like a kind of dramatization piece. Then we have kind of longer pieces, which, you know, are a bit more academic and others are much more kind of, this is my personal experience. Please don't do this again. And the beauty of this is the kind of how different the 50 pieces are and how you can engage with this publication in different ways. So I have read it front to back like multiple times given um, 
what we're doing with it. But then randomly, I just picked it up and read a couple of random essays and the content is so different and so many different themes are explored from the link of sort of British colonialism to the welfare state to... Um, yeah, to, ta- to uh, forms of practice, to recontextualising histories... Um, to like to discrimination people exactly to discrimination <laughs> in the procurement system and and it's this kind of layering of what, what makes it really interesting and people within the book obviously don't agree with each other and that's something to say it's like it's so exhausting when I'm asked to give my opinion about something and I'm like just to note this is my personal experience this is not an experience of all people of color or all Asian women or you know it's like it's so easy to kind of expect us all to have one opinion Mm. and that is another interesting aspect of this is to have slightly different takes on what it is whether Mm. like yeah and also people bring in their professional expertise into it so some people have written about the role of architects in public health Mm -hmm. but what they Mm. at the moment most of the speaking requests i was getting was talking about diversity not that I uh, have like expertise in like delivering circular economy projects or having designed school buildings or like, you know, it was like you, you as a brown person, what's your contribution to this discussion about diversity? And obviously some people in the book have taken and said, no, I do want to talk about, actually, I do want to talk about identity and diversity. Now people say, actually, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about technology. Mm-hmm. And I want to, this is, this is, this is what I want to present. And I think giving people the space to say what they want and not dictating the brief was very, very simple. Mm. I mean, I call it light touch editing would be like the way of describing it. But I think in a way, the interesting thing is saying, you have space, how do you want to occupy it? Mm. I think that's like, the, a, I would like to think that's quite a powerful thing to do. Mm. And then the, again, the aesthetics, this doesn't look like many other mm. architectural mm. publications. And I think that the idea that all of these, the, the, the sound advice ability to, to through text like the aesthetics of the different voices that you'll see as you come out, it does feel like a load of different people. It doesn't just feel like um, the essays all look and feel different as you walk, as you go through the book. And you do get a sense of the different voices. You can Maybe because we know the people, it's easiest to hear. But a lot of people in the book I've never met before and I've never spoken to and I can kind of feel like I hear their voice. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's exciting for us. And also then the first time that we as a group of, uh, as, a, as a cohort meet, we're just really excited to think about all the different projects, collaborations, mm. relationships, networks that this publication will bring, both from the contributors and those people that engage with it. Mm. So the thing we should have said about the AA is that we wanted, as a platform, to not center ourselves in that discussion, which is why we sort of like um, brought um, Salads and Sufan Adian, was that they were able to then, to, they then used the platform to tell their story. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, we get, as we get more requests to do sort of media, we're bringing other people in to share their story through the fact they contributed to the book. So part of our, like, I guess, plan with sound advice is that as time goes on, Pooja and I almost exit stage like left and right. And the thing becomes a, a much more of a democratic space. Because um, at the moment it does require like two individuals who started something to get enough momentum to get something going. I think our experience in the public sector of how to set up 
projects and organizations or whatever, you do understand there is an element of leadership and, you know, uh, getting things going. But once things do have enough momentum, I think it's also having a succession plan and knowing when to like leave and knowing when to like pass things on. And I think we're very much like in that like sort of mode of like what happens next? How does it become more of a platform? What is this? If this is an institution, it has to start right because I don't, it's very hard to perform an institution if it starts the wrong way. So I think this is like the bit that we're in now. It's like the book will come out, so we some more projects. Uh, it would be like a year would have passed since we like became an organ business in October. What's next? I think that constant like I don't know uh, self criticality. You know, like the self the self reflection. And I think about writing all these tips is you have to then also filter them, filter yourself through them. Mm. And they also hold us to, I feel like they, they hold me to account yeah, um, as well and make me question, like, am I doing things in the right way? Like, is this the right type of like practice that we should be doing? I think that yeah. is quite an interest. I don't know how many institutions are constantly being reminded of their mm. like ethical uh, role they need to play. Um. And the, the way, I mean, you talked at the beginning about how the book came out of um, the response to the, the kind of black square posting phenomenon and the kind of rage that it elicited from that. And the book is kind of putting itself forward as a kind of antidote or alternative. It, I think way. it's a, well, it was asking lots of people to respond because lots of people were feeling lots of different types of things. Mm -hmm. So the book captures this moment of a few months where people have responded in lots of different ways, some from anger, some mm -hmm. with much more, this is what you can do, some with, this is my experience. So again, it has this kind of myriad of experiences and tones and kind of a collection, but it very much captures those few months in its rawness, which I think is incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the title of the book is Now You Know, exactly. and it sort of sits under you know, Notorious B.I.G.'s um, or Big Smalls, if you don't know, now you know. So the idea is also that hopefully we don't need to keep talking about this anymore. Yeah, like, I mean, actually read the book. Like, stop asking us to do diversity talks. Just read the book. Mm -hmm. And mm. and that is also quite sound advice. Yeah, and I think the... I mean, probably the... the, the I, just, I just thought of it now is, uh, again, Shumi... This is architectural writer and teacher and friend of the podcast, Shumi Bose. Mm -hmm. She's quite like a, I guess, like a big figure. Like, I was like a, again, another person who like feeds into, like, I guess, our lives. Thinking, yes, yeah. I think in. Talks a lot about coalition. And I think the nice thing about the book is it is very diverse, even though it's a book about for people of colour. Like, the, the diversity and the representation of the book is very broad. And, uh, that was really important to us to say this isn't just one person's like burden is a if you and there's no reason why you can't have like why white people can't be part of this coalition but you have to like meet us halfway hmm. and i think what the black blackout tuesday thing felt was that the black square was like a mini minuscule step and they expected us to run the next 100 meters towards them and I think our book is like, we're going to place the book 50 metres if it's a 100 metre track, obviously. And we'll walk, we're there and then we wait, we'll, you will then come and meet us here. Mm -hmm. And then we can have like a, a proactive discussion. Um, and I think it's quite hard for people to like make that first mm. series of steps uh -huh. towards towards this, where we want them to be. I mean, to, to that point about the diversity of the, of the authorship of the book, like it gets at that frustration that I think a lot of people are voicing now around... Um, 
how problematic the term BAME is, mm. becoming kind of monolithic expression mm. of what in reality is a much more diverse group of people. Um, what I'm just thinking as you're discussing the book's ambitions is about what the aftermath is actually going to be and like whether or not um, or how the book is going to be met halfway exactly because there's a lot of labor involved in producing this thing <laughs> there's a lot of labor and i'm sure it was painful and joyful and cathartic but it was i mean question I, the question for me is like who else now needs to do the work and is doing the work by buying the book enough you know and i think that sometimes there's a risk that you know, the bookshelf becomes yet another way of signaling a certain agenda or alliance. I think there is a risk that people buy the book, put it on the bookshelf and call it a day. I think that is how we end our introduction to, to the book, in fact, is, you know, yeah, you can buy it, you can put it in your Zoom background of your <laughs> shelf, but actually you know, it, it's up to you to do the, the educating yourselves bit, which is the first step and yeah we have done a lot of the labor I say we as the as the collective we not Joseph and me so yeah it is definitely about waiting for people to I mean how long do we wait is a question but yeah people taking that kind of and also having like low expectations <laughs> this is very you know, Joseph. <laughs> you know it's I don't want to get to stage where this is. I feel like this book is going to change the world. Like I don't have that expectation. Mm. I think if it can have some impact, that's better than nothing. And I guess the argument, the thing is like, is it the right labour? But I guess the other thing is, well, what, what else can we do if not do something? I think that's like is very much us, isn't it? It's like yeah. the hustle mentality. Yeah, it goes back just, to a lot, of, like, a lot of the music we listen to. It's and like, like how we were came together in the first place. Yeah, let's, just give do things. let's give it a go. Let's give it a go. This is so interesting, just the way this pronoun we, it's starting to, I mean, it's flickering now a little bit. Mm. We before, I think, and through the, the course of the Sound Advice Project, was always we as underrepresented people. And we is slowly, I think, becoming an even more inclusive we, I guess. And I mean, this, this, is, the, this is the line of thought that brings us to the last song you both chose together. Perfect. Yeah, let's play it. You should come and build with me. Anything I want to say about Tierra Wack is I think if sound advice was translated into an artist and a sound, it would be Tierra Wack. Like in a way, her music has started and has like culminated like a chapter of our existence. Completely. Like yeah. one of the first songs, we, one of the first things we bonded over was Tierra Wack's music, and we referenced her in our first article. We use her every every single event we do. We put a Tierra Wack song pretty much in it. If not in it, like in a, in a, a playlist or something. Yeah, because yeah. I think it's the, her sound sums up the cartoonishness, the like I don't know, the the bubblegumness of it. Yeah. Like there's something about it, like as in a sonic aesthetic, which isn't a real thing, but I'll keep saying it. And then it, yeah, it kind of sounds like sound advice to us. Get your education, build your foundation. Want a future, make one. We can link, we can build, we can talk, we can chill, we can do what you like. We can link, we can build, we can talk, we can chill, we can do what you like. 
you should come and build with me. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce this show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Sade, Kalashnikov, Kano, Madlib, Nana Cherry, MIA, and Tiara Wag. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Joseph and Pooja, and to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.